You know, a 20-year-old Ian McCormick set out from New Zealand uh, to meet this longing for the perfect wave, the perfect high, the perfect girl. It was a surfer's dream. Traveling throughout Australia and Indonesia, when one night uh, he was scuba diving in, in, off the, in the Indian Ocean, and he got stung by a box jellyfish four times. One sting is deadly. And in the ambulance on the way to the hospital, Ian felt his life fading away. He saw his whole life flash before him. And he thought to himself, am I going to die? What happens when you die? And then he said, a clear vision of my mother saying, Ian, no matter how far you are from God, no matter what you've done wrong, if you cry out to God from your heart, he will hear you and forgive you. He sees this vision of a past memory with his mom. He said, in my heart, I was thinking, do I even believe there's a God? Am I going to pray? I'd almost become a devout atheist. And yet I was confronted with this vision of my mother. He said, I, I didn't know what to pray or whom to pray to. Buddha, Kali, Shiva, I mean, there are thousands of gods. But my mother followed Jesus Christ. I wondered what to pray. And then the Lord's prayer that, the, that his mom had taught him, he heard a voice telling it to him. Forgive us our sins. And he started to say, Lord, I've done so many wrong things. I don't even know how you can forgive me, but please forgive me. The next line came up. As we forgive those who sinned against us. And line by line, Ian prayed through the Lord's Prayer. And then he passed away. At first, Ian found himself fully alive. Feeling more alive than he ever had. But in utter darkness that terrified him. And, and next week, we're going to dive and explore more about these overlooked, often hellish experiences. What is all that about? But Ian describes what happened next. He said, I was weeping and I cried out to God, why am I here? I asked for your forgiveness. Why am I here? And then a brilliant light shone upon me and literally drew me out of the darkness. The light wasn't just material in nature. It was living light. It transmitted an emotion. It filled me with a sense of love and acceptance I came to the end of this tunnel and seemed to be standing upright before the very source of all light and power. It looked like a white fire or a mountain of cut diamonds sparkling with the most indescribable brilliance. He said questions began running through his mind. Is this just a force like the Buddhists say or is it karma or yin and yang or is there someone standing in there? And as he thought these thoughts, a voice spoke to him from the center of the light. He said it was the same voice he had heard earlier guiding him in that prayer. The voice said, Ian, do you wish to return? Which is fascinating because so many NDEs say that's what they are asked. He replied, if I'm out of my body, I don't know where I am. I wish to return. The response from the person was, if you wish to return, Ian, you must see in a new light. He said, the moment I heard these words, something clicked, and I recalled a Christmas card I got one time that said, Jesus is the light of the world, and, and God is light, and in him there is no darkness. He said, so this is God? He is light. And he knew my name. He knew my secret thoughts. He knew everything about me in my heart and mind. I felt ashamed and undone. My first thought was, this light is going to cast me back into the darkness, but to my amazement, a wave of pure, unconditional love flowed over me. It was the last thing I expected, Ian said. Instead of judgment, I was being washed with pure, unadulterated, clean, uninhibited, undeserved love. Later, he said, God showed me that when I had asked for forgiveness in that ambulance, it was then that he forgave me and washed my spirit clean. I found myself beginning to weep uncontrollably as this love became stronger and stronger. This love was healing my heart and I began to understand the incredible hope for humanity in this love. I was so close, I wondered, could I step into the light? Could I see him face to face? I stepped into the light and it was as if I'd come inside veils of suspended shimmering lights, like suspended stars or like diamonds. And standing in the middle of the light stood a man with dazzling white robes reaching down to his ankles. I could see his bare feet. The garments were not man-made fabrics. They were like garments of light. I looked at the chest of this man who had his arms stretched out as if to welcome me. 
It was so bright that I couldn't even make out the features of his face, but I knew I was standing in the presence of Almighty God. No one but God could look like this. Now, I have read about a thousand accounts of people who have had these near-death experiences and been resuscitated, and I gotta tell you, it's unbelievable how many of them say similar things that overlap with the scriptures, and how many of them talk about this divine being of light and love. All around the globe, people describe the same being that they know to be God, and consistently, he is the highlight of heaven. Of all the things we've talked about, of all the things they they talk about, of all the beauty, of all the wonder, and the colors, and the mountains and valleys, of all the loving reunions, nothing compares to the very presence of God. He is the one you're longing for. Have you figured that out yet? Because that transforms your life when you really come to realize that. But who is he? You know, Osis and Haroldson, two researchers, studied 500 Americans and 500 Indians trying to determine how much religious or cultural conditioning shaped someone's near-death experience. And they noted this. They said, if a patient sees a radiant man clad in white, because that's a common experience, who induces in him an inexplicable experience of harmony and peace, he might interpret the apparition in various ways. An angel, Jesus, or God, or if he's Hindu, Krishna, Siva, or Deva. Now, here's what's interesting. I've heard researchers say that people interpret this being of light differently. But what I've never heard is I've never read an NDE who's described anything like Krishna, who has blue skin, or Siva, who has three eyes, or the dissolution of the individual self into the impersonal Brahma, the ultimate Hindu reality. And though people make different interpretations, consistently they describe a brilliant man of light who they know to be God, and the characteristics of this being of light are amazingly consistent with what the prophets and what Jesus said they revealed about God. And so in the next few minutes, I wanna help you imagine just how wonderful, just how loving, just how much you long for this God and to be with this God. And I want you to just consider this. If God is truly as wonderful as people have had these near-death experiences and as the scriptures claim, if no one knows you or loves you more, why wouldn't you seek to know him with all your heart? And if you do, why wouldn't you follow him with all your life as much as you possibly can? And I want you to just consider, am I wholeheartedly seeking to follow God? Well, the first thing every person experiences and what scripture says is that God is light and God is love. Those two things. Simran, who nearly died in a bus crash in Mumbai, recalls, a bright light appeared, having a soft man's voice that told me, you will leave behind everything, your loved ones, money, even your clothes, you will come to me empty-handed. The light also gave me an important message that I was to follow it. How can I put it in words? The feeling is way too beautiful to believe. So true, so loving, so peaceful. Now here's what's fascinating. Osis and Haroldson note this. Uh, now let me first say, Osis and Haroldson f- first say that Christians didn't experience what the Bible said because they didn't experience judgment or punishment, which I'm gonna show in two weeks is, is a vast misinterpretation of what the scriptures actually would, would expect. And I'll explain why in two weeks. But they also say this. Several basic Hindu ideas of the afterlife were never portrayed in the vision of the Indian patients. The various Vedic loci of an afterlife or a Hindu heaven were never mentioned, nor were reincarnation and dissolution in Brahman, the formless aspect of God, which is the goal of Indian spiritual striving. The concept of karma of the accumulation of merits and demerits for our good and bad things may have been vaguely suggested by reports of, quote, a white-robed man with a book of accounts, end quote. Okay, now here's the thing. A white-robed man who is light and love and books of accounts, that might not be Hindu, but it is a description of what the Jewish prophets and the disciples of Jesus talk about when they talk about God. Yahweh 
remember, appeared to Moses as a brilliant light. He said it was like a burning bush that never burned out. Another time, he appears to him on the mountain, and it's so bright, Moses comes down glowing. It's called the Shekinah glory, right? And here's what God says about himself to Moses. This is in 1500 BCE. The Lord passed in front of Moses, calling out, Yahweh the Lord, the God of compassion and mercy. That's how God identifies himself. And he says, I, I'm slow to anger. I'm filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. I lavish unfailing love to a thousand generations. I forgive iniquity and rebellion and sin, but I do not excuse the guilty. He doesn't just blow off justice. The Jewish prophet Ezekiel saw a vision of heaven, similar thing in about 600 BCE. He writes this in Ezekiel 1. High above on the throne was a figure like that of a man. I saw that, for, that from what appeared to be his waist up, he looked like glowing metal, as if full of fire. Hear the same thing. And that from there down, he looked like fire and brilliant light surrounded him, like the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day. It's unbelievable how similar people who've had near-death experiences describe this. That was the radiance around him. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. Daniel saw this, this same God and the Messiah to come, who, who he called the Son of Man. And that term actually became Jesus' favorite term for himself, the Son of Man. Look at this vision of heaven that Daniel gets in about 550 BC, Daniel 7. As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days, referring to God, took his seat. His clothes Clothes was as white as snow. The, the hair of his head was white as wool. His throne was like flaming fire. Again, you can see, he's trying to describe this brilliant light. The court was seated and books were opened. It's amazing how common the books thing is. It's kind of weird. And there before me was one like the son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power all nations and peoples of every language worshiped him. Now, this is unbelievable. Right here, these are the Jewish prophets. They believe there's only one God, and yet here, and even a thousand years before Jesus, they explain this mystery they see of one God, but revealed not only in this brilliant, loving light, but also as a son of man who was to come. And they wrote this before Jesus ever came. Then Jesus comes and he declares, I am the light of the world. And his disciples, when they said he was resurrected, see him both as he appeared on earth as a man, but also as this brilliant man of light. In fact, Saul, who became Paul and wrote much of the New Testament, he was killing Christians. He was on a mission to arrest Christians going on his way to Damascus when it says this. In Acts chapter 9, as Paul was approaching Damascus on this mission, a light from heaven suddenly shone down around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. The voice replied, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Friends, this being of light and love that people see around the globe, that they say is the highlight of heaven, he's Jesus. You know, Jesus, Jesus even said, this in John 10, 27. Because you know, it's interesting. Those who know him recognize him. Those who don't, don't. But they describe the same being. And Jesus said, my sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life. They will never perish. No one can snatch them from the Father's hand. The Father and I are one. And here, here's what's fascinating. I had, I've had lots of you come up to me in this series and tell me about your near-death experience that you've not really shared with many people. And one woman wrote me this week and talked about when her son was three years old, he fell in her pool and drowned. And the doctor said he wouldn't survive. If he did survive, he would have brain damage. 12 hours later, miraculously, he, he, he recovered completely. And the mom writes how, you know, they're in the hospital she said, he, t he told me of seeing Jesus, and he talked about Jesus' smile. And I asked him, what did Jesus look like? And with a childish chuckle, he said, like Jesus, mommy. <laughs> and she said, his total assurance of Jesus was breathtaking. 
But it's fascinating. Listen to how Dr. Mary Neal, the spine surgeon I interviewed week one of this series, who was dead for 30 minutes, how she just knew. Listen to how she describes that. Watch. I went over a waterfall that had a tremendous volume and a lot of current. And as my boat rocketed down, the front end became stuck or pinned in the rocks underwater. And the boat and I were immediately and completely submerged under about eight or 10 feet of water. Hmm. And I very quickly knew that I was likely going to die. And at that point, I completely surrendered the outcome to God's will. And the moment I asked that God's will be done, I was immediately uh, and very physically held by Christ and reassured that everything would be fine, regardless. How did you know it was Jesus holding you? It's an absolute pure knowledge. It would be as though I saw my husband in the grocery store and I knew it was my husband. I don't have to ask if it's my husband. Mm. I knew that it was Christ holding me and it was a very pure, absolute knowledge. And that was one of the first very profound aspects of this experience for me because I knew that I didn't deserve to be held by Christ. I certainly didn't deserve his love or his reassurance, but that's the beauty of it. None of us actually deserve God's love. Hmm. What did he look like? Everybody wants to know. Everybody asks. I know. And my answer is very clear, even though it's nonsensical. And I would say that he looked like bottomless kindness and compassion. And those are not words that make sense because those aren't words that we use visually, but that is what he looked like. It wasn't a matter of looking at someone and saying, oh, you know, he had brown hair and, you know, whatever. Um, He looked like bottomless kindness and compassion. And in terms of uh, his outward appearance, I would say the same thing as the other people I saw, which is a, a physicality head, arms, legs, uh, and again, this, this filamentous robe exploding with love. But I also will say that I'm not entirely sure that that's how he always is. Which makes sense because it says that God fills the universe. So he's not always going to appear that way, but it's amazing how consistently he appears to people who've had these near-death experiences. And what they say and what scripture says is not only that God is love and light, but that God is personal. That God is a person. You know, they they don't come back talking about an impersonal force. They don't talk about an impersonal consciousness that they just melded into. They talk about this personal being that personally knew them like no one has ever known them before. Every thought, every motive, and yet love them unconditionally like no one ever has. And Jesus demonstrated this. He, he called his disciples his friends. He said, you're my friends. You know, it's fascinating. Eben Alexander, who's a Harvard neurosurgeon, had a near-death experience. And though he didn't recognize Jesus, though I, I think later he made a connection when he was sitting in church, but he says this. He says, one of the biggest mistakes people make when they think about God is to imagine God as impersonal. Yes, God is behind the numbers, the perfection of the universe, but God is even more human than you and I are. He understands and sympathizes with our human situation more profoundly and personally than we can even imagine, which sounds really strange until you realize that's what the scripture has said for 2,000 years. That's what Hebrews 2 and Hebrews 4 says. Because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood, the son also became flesh and blood. It was necessary for him to be made in every respect like us, his brothers and sisters, so that he could be our merciful and faithful high priest before God. Then he could offer a sacrifice that would take away the sins of the people. Because remember, like he said to Moses, he has unfailing love, but he doesn't just blow off justice. He doesn't just excuse guilt. He pays for it himself for all who will receive that payment. And since he himself has gone through suffering and testing, he's able to help us when we're being tested. 
Jesus understands our weaknesses, for he faced all the same testings we did, yet he did not sin. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy. We will find grace to help us when we need it most. He's personal. He loves you. He knows you better than you know yourself. And you know the reason he foretold what he was going to do for thousands of years through the prophets and then revealed himself through Jesus is he wants you to know him. He wants you to know him in a very real and personal way. He doesn't want you to just intangibly know him. He wants you to know what he's like. He wants you to know how much he cares. And he says all we have to do is turn to him. He will forgive anyone who wants his forgiveness. He will guide anyone who wants his guidance. Because all he wants from you and me or any person is you and me and all people. He wants a loving relationship. You know, Dale Black, who I interviewed last week, the the TWA airline pilot, who I just have to say is a brilliant man. He has a PhD. He's run several multi-million dollar businesses in the airline industry. Um, and, And the reason I tell you that is because when I ask him when his plane crashed and he died... Uh, and he saw the city of God, and I asked him if he saw Jesus. He couldn't hold it together. Watch this. Did you, did you see Jesus? Later, I did. That was the last thing that happened. After going through the city and asking questions and going through at the very last moment, I had been ushered closer and closer toward the light, toward the light, toward the light. The light that's in the center, center of the city. Yeah, and then there was a stairway that was near the glass sea, which it looked like a sea, and a stairway that went up. And a large angel with the most uh, power, if we would say that. And it was clear that he was basically in charge of that stairway. And uh, I be- just began to communicate. Uh, to this angel heart to heart. Again, it's hard to say, did we talk? It seemed like it, but then it seemed like we didn't. This communication was was just impeccably pure. And I began to recognize, I can't go up there. I can't go up. I, I can't go up and still go back. And I was thinking, go back. Go back? What, what, what do we mean? What's that mean? And as soon as I'm thinking, go back, the angel moved just to the side. But I looked into the eyes of the warmest, kindness, most wonderful. I knew this was the Son of God. I knew this was my Savior. And all of a sudden, my knees buckled. My legs lost their strength. And I just went down. I couldn't stand. I was, I was not worthy to I was not worthy to stand in his presence. Funny that I didn't feel worthy to be in heaven, yet I knew I was worthy in the early part. I was somehow given this, granted this authority, but I had this supernatural uh, gift that I was worthy. Somebody had done something for me. He had. Yes. And so I'm down on my just falling down and I see his feet and I grab them and I hold his feet and I see the scars and I know this is the son of God. He's my savior. He's my Lord. It is because of him. He died for everybody. It's so cool because the Bible even says, no, I take that back. Jesus said that uh, I have come not to condemn the world, but that the world through me will be saved. And it was because of that. He was, he's not condemning anybody. It doesn't matter what you've done in your life, what sins you've done, including murder. It doesn't matter what you've done. All of it is, is forgivable. God can forgive anybody of anything. And then we have this free gift that we call salvation, you and I know about And that's it. what you felt and at that's his of feet. Course, like. I just, but to describe this experience, I just stopped at his feet and, and I was 
worshiping him in down on the ground there. And I heard the voice, Dale, do you love me? <laughs> That's it. Do you love me? And I'm trying to think of all these words to say. And I'm getting ready to say, in a sense, I'm getting ready to say, but I've said nothing. And I'm getting ready to say, of course I love you, Lord. I remember who you are and what you do. I'm getting ready to say that. And he bends down and whispers into my ear. And I'm now back. Do, do you love me? That's really all he wants to know. You know, God is relational. That's, that's what people say again and again. And you know, the reason that God doesn't force himself on you, the reason God doesn't identify himself to every near-death experiencer, unless they ask, unless they, unless they are seeking him, he doesn't force himself on them. Why? Because love and relationship can't be forced. It has to be freely chosen. And relationship, that's all God wants. It's why he made you. It's why he made me. And, and you know, that what's wrong with this world is that all of us have turned away from God. We've gone our own way. I mean, if you don't believe me, just think about how much of the day you spend thinking about getting your will done versus getting God's will done. It's, we're, 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 self-obsessed being God, playing God. And yet, God demonstrated his unconditional love, meeting his justice. He doesn't just excuse guilt on the cross. He paid for it because of his love. Jesus said, this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him, who puts their trust in him, will not perish but have eternal life. God sent his son to the world not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. You know, Christians sometimes ask, they wonder, how could people who don't believe in Jesus at all, don't know who he is, how could they experience this brilliant man of light who is Jesus and, not, and experience his love and acceptance, not judgment or punishment? Because that's who he is and what he came to do. He said it. I mean, think about the woman caught in adultery that the religious leaders wanted to condemn to death. Jesus protected her from them. And then he said, neither do I condemn you. Now go and sin no more. You know, what we realize is that God's love, God's grace is so great. He will take anyone back for anything, even an atheist who denied him and cursed his name. And if you don't believe me, watch this. When I was around the age of 15, I came to the conclusion that the little exposure to Christianity that I'd had was all a lot of hypocrisy and nonsense, and that I didn't want to participate. I was very successful as a professor. I got tenure and became a full professor. I had two galleries exhibiting my work. I'd won a big award from the state of Kentucky as Sculptor of the Year. I was on a um, art tour with a group of students around Europe, and we were on the next to the last day of the trip, and we were in Paris, France. And at 11 o'clock in the morning, I had a perforation of the small stomach for several hours. I had been living from moment to moment, trying not to die. And then I uh, closed my eyes and went unconscious with absolute certainty that that would be my last sensation, my last thought. Help me welcome Howard Storm. And uh, Howard, I found out some people actually came to hear you today thinking you were Howard Stern. <laughs> no, we have much better than that. Yeah. We have Howard Storm. So you were a tenured college and an atheist, yes. when in, in Paris, you, you had this thing happen that radically changed your life, I mean, completely. Completely. Why don't you take us back to that day? Tell us what happened when your body failed and you died. Okay. June 1st, 1985, although it was more than 30 years ago, it could have been yesterday. That's the, the thing that's that wild. That's what everybody says, is yeah. the memory's not here. It's, yeah, it's my, like 
I mean, sometimes I can't. Sometimes I can't remember my wife's name, which she doesn't like, but I can remember <laughs> this. <laughs> you know? But this is clear as yesterday. Yes, and um, I think that I was as unpredisposed to have this experience as anyone could be. I was a committed, confirmed intellectual atheist and had been ever since my adolescence, and all of my friends were. I had, at 11 o'clock in the morning, a perforation of the small stomach, which meant that um, somewhere between a half and three-quarter of an inch rupture in um, my digestive system, like right inside of there, burst open, and the hydrochloric acid and the digestive juices started to migrate into my abdominal cavity. So what I was doing was I was digesting myself on the inside, and what that feels like is precisely like if you reached your hand into the barbecue and picked up red hot coals and stuck it inside of you. Just, it was just red hot fire. Um, the pain of it took me to the ground kicking and screaming. My wife called the desk for a doctor. They called a medical service. A doctor came. He knew exactly what was going on. Uh, told us that it was a critical situation. I need to have surgery like immediately, and he was going to be sending me to have that surgery at um, a big city hospital. An ambulance came, had a um, hair-raising trip, and the ambulance through the streets of Paris going, you know, 60, 70 miles an hour, and went into the emergency room, diagnosed by two more doctors who, same information, um, you either have the surgery now or you're not going to make it. You only have a, a small window of opportunity, a few hours to live. Um, but you it's found that like five hours usually and people yeah, die. Maximum, yeah. Be because you become so septic and, and the infection. And uh, I was sent to a surgical hospital, and it's kind of hard to understand from the perspective of the United States, but there was no doctor at the surgical hospital because it was a weekend. Or in French, it was le weekend. <laughs> <laughs> In other words, don't have an emergency in France on Saturday. Not on Saturday or and Sunday. Sunday, yeah. Okay. <laughs> so they put me in a room and just left me there. No, no doctor, no blood uh, work, no um, blood pressure, no temperature, no, no medication, medication oh. no, no drugs, no pillow, no sheet, no blanket. Um, I mean, how, how, what do I need to say about nothing? You know, there was nothing. <laughs> and... Uh, the hours went by, um, never saw a doctor. Every once in a while, every hour or so, a nurse would come by and say, Sava, and uh, I was telling I'm dying. I mean, and this wasn't like wishful thinking. It was, you know, it was like, um, I, I knew. And I was getting increasingly hard to breathe. The pain, which is, had been an area, now became my whole abdominal cavity, and it was um, just uh, mind-numbing. I mean, I just couldn't. Just incomprehensible that this could be happening. I had a French roommate who tried to intercede for me. Somebody do something, and they're like, "What can we do? There's no doctor to give any orders." Um, so, uh, cut that. Cut to the chase here. At 8:30 that night, we've gone from 11 a.m. to 8:30. Nurse comes into the room and says, um, "We're very sorry, but we're unable to locate a doctor. We will try and get one tomorrow." And when she said that, what I heard was ready, aim, fire. Um, not literally, but you know what I mean? I mean, it's, it's done. This is, I have been hanging on the cliff and I've lost grip with one hand and, I, and a couple of fingers have gone numb and like, why? What, what's the point? And um, it's time to go. What did you think would happen when you died? I didn't think, I knew. I was a rational, well-educated man, and all of my friends were PhDs in their different fields. And anybody that didn't know what we knew was ignorant. What we knew, I mean, I'm just trying to, I mean, this is what we really think, and I know they still think. Um, when you die, it's over. The end, nothing, you know, no, no more sensation, no more consciousness, no more life. It's just 
You know, you've seen a squirrel run over on the road, like, what do you think, a little spirit goes floating up to heaven? What do you, like, not, you know, like, no, there's no such thing. It's just, that's all a figment of the imagination. So that's what you're prepared for, and then you expire? Yeah, and I'm 38 years old, and my life had been good, and I was like, this is, it's terrible. It's frightening, but, um, so I went unconscious, and I awoke from that unconsciousness, and to my complete surprise and delight, I felt better than I'd ever felt in my whole life, and specifically, my eyesight, my hearing, my taste, my touch, everything was more intense than it had ever been before. And it's very bizarre to assert this, but this is a lesser reality than what you experience outside of this reality. And one of the things that I like about near-death experiences, they all agree on this. There's, there's this consensus of opinion yeah. amongst us weirdos. You know? yeah. <laughs> that this, this earth is more like the shadow of the real thing. Yeah, and yeah. it's a pretty strange assertion. And so you felt that. You felt great. You're, you're looking at the same room. You're in the same room. Yes, but there was a couple disturbing things that happened. One, as I tried to communicate with my wife, and I tried to communicate with my roommate, Monsieur Florin, who was very kind. They seemed to be ignoring me, which made me very angry. Well, you know, my wife always ignored me when I was, um, <laughs> you know. <laughs> you know. Uh, so did you think you were dead? Well, there was one more disturbing thing that I couldn't understand. The bed that I had been in had a corpse in it that looked like me. But I knew no, I thought, I didn't know, I thought, how can that be me? Because I'm standing here feeling great. That's me, and I'm alive. Makes, makes no sense. I don't know why that's there, but it's not me. I'm me, you know? And uh, I heard people outside the room calling me by name. Howard, come now. We're waiting for you. Come. And... Um, who do you think they were? I asked them. I said, are you from the doctor? I'm sick. I need surgery. I've been waiting all day. I'm very sick. And they said, we know. We know everything about you. We're waiting. No more time to wait. Come now. I mean, in this, I'm trying to imitate their kind of syrupy, sweet invitation to me. So. I'm thinking, okay, you know, they're going to walk me to surgery. What else is new in this hospital? You know, of course you're going to walk, get walked to surgery. <laughs> you know, um, only the best. Only the best. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I left the room and went into the hallway where they were, and they walked me and walked me. They encircled me um, and made sure that they directed me. And the journey went on and on and on, and it went, it seemed like hours, days, on and on and on. And as we went. Which is kind of confusing, but time wasn't really the same. There, it's very weird, but there was no time. Everything, there was no past, print, present, or future. Everything was just in this big now. That's too weird to get into. Um, and. Eventually, I realized that we were going into complete darkness. It had been so gradual that it took a while for me to figure this out that, you know, I can't see anything anymore. And the other thing was that the people who had started off with these kind of sweet voices were now like, move it, keep going, don't ask questions, shut up, move, you know, and I'm like, all right, I'm done. I want, I so, want out of here. So this is, I mean, this is really eerie, but I think really important is, in essence, you had the same experience initially as everybody. You felt great, you were more alive than ever, and you have this really nice welcoming committee. Right. Just didn't turn out that way. Yeah. Um, next time I'm looking for Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> well, keep going. Yeah. Talk about <laughs> You know, he did say he would come and take us to where he is, mm -hmm. you know? Um, and I'm believing that. Mm. And anyways, uh, I said, I'm not going with you any further. And they said, oh, yes, you are. You've got further to go. 
So I am not um, the world's leading authority on what happens in the netherworld, in the underworld, in the hellish shield pit, the abyss, the valley of the shadow death. But I've been there. How many people can say that? <laughs> uh. You know? <laughs> Well, do you think that yeah. is what Jesus was talking about when he said the outer darkness? Jesus talks about, actually, Jesus never used the word hell. He talks about being cast into the outer darkness, his weeping and gnashing teeth, and he talks about Gehenna, Gehenna which was the garbage dump of Jerusalem. Mm. And this uh, fit the bill on both accounts perfectly. So what, I mean, what happened that radically changed your life? When I refused to go with them any further, and they wanted me to go deeper into us, we fought, and this uh, battle went on and on and on until eventually there was nothing physically, emotionally left of me to resist anymore. I was all, I was strewn about. I was eviscerated. I was um, um, total pain, total humiliation, total violation and stuff that um, I have never talked about and I have no intention of ever talking about because they, they're really bad at what they do. And it was, I was about to say good at what they do, but there's nothing good about what they do. I mean, they're very sadistic. And uh, I called, uh, I remembered in this place of complete hopelessness, which is the most profound about that place, but it's, it's hard to describe unless if, if any of you, you've been there in a place of complete hopelessness. Um, in that place, my memory remembered my childhood and, you know, this um, childlike, simple trust and belief in a guy by the name of Jesus. And I, I had nothing except that little memory. And I remembered believing that and feeling that, and I, and, I, you, and I went for it. You wrote in your book that you just remembered three lines of a song. Jesus loves me, la, la, la. That was it. Some woman gave up her Sunday morning to teach Sunday school, and I don't remember her. But when I go to heaven, I'm going I'm to kiss her hands mm. and thank her. And I never gave that gift to my kids. I raised my kids as atheists. And they bought it hook, line, and sinker. And I've got to suffer with that for the rest of my life. Maybe not. Maybe we're not. We're going to pray not. Yeah, we're going to pray. When I felt that, Jesus loves me. I called out in that darkness, Jesus, please save me. I didn't mean to sound like a Baptist, but I did. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and he came. <laughs> you, said, you said you saw a pinpoint of light. Yeah, I saw, of, I saw this kept growing like a little star, and it got so bright over me that it was like, it wasn't scary, but it was like, whoa, whoa, this light is like too bright. It's, you know, it's like, am I going to be consumed in this light? And when the light came over me, not only did I see how really horrendously disemboweled and disgusting and putrid I was, but hands and arms came out of the light, reached down, touched me, and all that gore dissolved away, and I was intact and whole again. And much more significantly was when those hands touched me. I was filled with a love beyond any experience of love that I've ever had. And I'd like to add that all this I live for is that love. The experience of the love which I am able at times to re-experience to some degree, which I experience from other people. And it's one of the reasons I'm kind of addicted to church. 
You know, because we, we do that love bomb thing in church, or we certainly strive for it, and, yeah. and, and it does work at times. Um, we struggle, and, but we sometimes get close. Yeah, and I have a 100% certain expectation that me and my buddy, my best friend, my Savior, my King, my Lord, my Jesus, um, we're going to be doing this again, and it is going to be the great getting up, hallelujah, day of my life. You know? That's so awesome. That's absolutely the best. And you said, so he took you out of there. Yeah. And as we're rapidly going away from darkness into a world of magnificent light, which is like, oh my, you know, <laughs> I've been the dope of the universe because we're going to where God is. This is God's house now we're going to. And you can see it far yeah, off, off and, off and you're on going the there. And I thought to myself, he's made a terrible mistake. I'm filth and I belong back down there. And we stopped our progress towards what I like to refer to as home, because that's where we all belong. Mm. It's our, our real home. This is not home. Big mistake thinking this is home. Mm. This is just a temporary experience. And he spoke, and he said, we don't make mistakes. You do belong here. And I thought, how'd you know I thought that? Did you hear my thoughts? <laughs> and he, like, I know everything you've ever thought. And I thought, oh no, this is really bad. <laughs> and then I thought, exactly. You know when you try and think about what you don't want to think about, you think about it? <laughs> can, can I say boobs in church? Yeah, you can. Okay. <laughs> I've always liked What them. if I said no? <laughs> <laughs> oh, then I wouldn't say that. Oh yeah, okay. okay. <laughs> Too late. I mean, that's, that's honestly, what you thought about. That's what I thought about. Yeah. And uh, Jesus, Jesus started laughing. I mean, you got to love this guy. You know, he thinks it's funny. You know? And what did you say? I was like, do you think it's funny? And I thought that. And he goes, like, yeah. He said, I really like, I mean, he likes me. He said, I think you're funny. And um, I was like, wow. Because, I mean, my wife have not thought I was that funny, you know? <laughs> well, anyways, so we started to converse, and it's like so easy. And it's the easiest being in the universe. Because I'm not, I don't understand how he does it, but he totally gets each and every one of us. I mean, he did make us, <laughs> you know, so but that it, might but be But isn't it funny that we don't get that? We just don't. We don't. Yeah. We think we can hide from him, or we hide our thoughts, or he yeah. doesn't know. And like I'm a grandfather. I got six grandkids. Well, actually, seven now. And uh, you know, I just love my grandkids. Um, and when you're a grandparent, you 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 love them more unconditionally than you love your own children. You know, they they're jumping the furniture and breaking things. It's like, isn't that adorable? <laughs> you, know? you know, I mean. Mom, God, you can yeah, do yeah, something. Right, right. Well, God is actually more like a grandparent because mm. his expectation is us to have the fullness of life that he gave us in this world. Uh, and he's not um, a, a cruel judge. He, he is absolute justice. Yeah. And he really abhors injustice and sin. But he also, he wants that our joy may, that his joy may be in us and our joy may be complete. That's scripture. Um, he wants us to be just filled with the joy of life. Well, and, and you had a whole life review in his presence, which we'll, we'll actually talk about the last week. We'll yeah. have you back on screen. Okay. But um, so you came back. Um, how did that happen, and how has it changed your life since? After the life review, he invited me to ask questions, and I asked him everything I could think of, and then uh, I told him that I wanted to go to heaven because he had shown me heaven, but that was just a tour. It was a visit. But I want, I mean, I'm in, I want to go there, be there forever because heaven is the coolest place in the universe. I mean, heaven makes this look like, you know, 
you know, really nothing in comparison. And because it's so much richer and more interesting um, and more varied. You think you got trees in this world? Ah, when do you get to heaven? You know, um, etc. And Jesus said, no, you know, you need to come back to this world. He, he told me that I was not a candidate for heaven at this time. I just didn't have the character. I wouldn't fit in. Um, and, no, wait, you, you got to explain that because, I mean, he saved you, so you were right with him, right? Right. So what, what does that mean? In heaven, there's no shadow, there's no fear, there's no anger, there's no vengeance, there's no sin. It's a bunch of goody-goodies having a good time. <laughs> and I, and I'm, I don't want to be a holy Joe, you know what I mean? You know, I mean, you know, someone who goes around and stifles other people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I don't want to be that. I want to be a joyful follower of Jesus mm-hmm. and do no harm and try to do as much good as I can possibly good given whatever circumstances I'm in. Yeah. And so he sent you back. Yeah, to my great disappointment. <laughs> um, and so here I am, and I come back into this world, and it's like, okay. How do you do this? How do you follow Jesus? How do you do this thing? And one of the reasons why I'm so enthusiastic about the church is because that's, I, I did read the Bible avidly, but um, I was misunderstanding, misinterpreting, and driving people away from God through my zealotry. Really, it was a really bad mistake. Um, and well, the church, you've seen what you've seen. I think you would be zealous. Yeah. And... Um, the church experience taught me how to, the practical application of Christianity as opposed to some kind of, you know, nutty, you know, individualistic interpretation. Well, and I know that following Jesus has cost, earthly-wise, it's cost you pretty much everything, hasn't it? Yeah. I um, don't think I want to go there right now because it hurts too much, but... I've also gained everything, too. You know, it's, it's so weird. The more you let go, the more God gives you in a different way. Yeah. And I've had a lot of trouble believing that and yeah. trusting it, and it, God has proved it over and over and over again in my life. Yeah. Let go of this, and you'll be surprised what I'm going to give you. Well, Howard, I... I can't wait for your next meeting with Jesus. Thank you. Because as I've gotten to know you. Wait a minute, wait a minute, what are you saying? I I know you're going to hear from him, well done. Amen. Well done. Amen. Good and faithful servant, you will. Amen. Let's thank Howard for taking the time to be with us. Thank you. And uh, Howard Howard has a, a book you have to read called My Descent into Death. And he's going to be out there, and they're available. He'll sign them. But, you know, just a really cool thing. You know who forwarded his book? (laughs) Anne Rice, the vampire lady. He led her to Christ. He led her to faith. And she forwarded his book. Wild. Uh, Thank you, Howard.